Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul speaks of the people and the nation Israel. He talks about their spiritual past in chapter 9. He talks about their present condition in chapter 10. He talks about their future restoration in chapter 11. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul shared his prayer. You'll remember in chapter 10, verse 1, it was his heart's desire and prayer for Israel's salvation. And now Paul writes about the reasons For Israel's rejection in in chapter 10 verses 1 through 13. And that God has used that rejection in part to bring mercy and grace and salvation to the Gentiles. And he's going to talk about that in chapter 11 verses 11 through 25. Now in chapter 11 Paul speaks and he asks the question. Has God permanently set aside his people? Or does God have unfinished business with Israel. And Paul's happy answer is the Jewish rejection of the Messiah is neither total in verses 1 through 25 or final in verses 26 and 27. The Lord in his mercy has placed the people of Israel into two different categories. One in a minority position. The other In a majority position, the minority group is that small remnant according to election and grace who have trusted Christ in verse 5. And then the proof that Paul offers is his own conversion in verse 1. He offers the experience of Elijah that God retains a remnant of Jewish believers in every generation. And tragically, the majority remain 
blinded in verse 7. The blindness in part comes from the universal sin of Adam in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. And the blindness that's caused by Satan spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. Where Paul intimates the fact that Satan has blinders on certain people's eye. And then there's a judicial blindness that's allowed by God in verse 8. The blindness was predicted by Moses and predicted by Isaiah and predicted by David. So we might think of these evidences or proofs as personal in verse 1, historical in verses 2 through 10, and then dispensational in verses 11 through 24. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by dispensational? In verses 11 through 24, Paul's focus is not so much on personal or individual salvation, Whether it's for the Jew or for the Gentile, he's talking about a corporate blessing. A blessing that was intended by people groups. And that the the current blessings that are taking place for the Gentiles will multiply and explode when Israel is restored. So Paul begins with his own personal story. Look at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul asks the question. Has God or will God cast away his people? The Greek Greek verb translated cast away is ah. Potheo. It's sometimes translated thrust away, like it is in Acts chapter 7, verse 27, or put away in 1 Timothy 1.19. It could even be translated pushed aside. Williams translates this disowned. The RSV translates this rejects. We might even read this God, it literally says in the text, God did not reject his people, did he? Or we might put it a little bit differently. Is God through with the Jew? Paul's response, me, genoito. It's an idiomatic expression. It means certainly not. Another way of thinking about it, unthinkable. Impossible. May it never be. Part of the point of the passage is Paul saying, shame on you. Shame on the thought. In the last chapter, in the closing verse of chapter 10, remember Paul left us with an image. But to Israel he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul's image of God in heaven is his heavenly father with his arms opened wide inviting the Jewish people to enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. And so here's what he's going to argue. That God has extended the salvation message to the nations, to the Gentiles. 
that people everywhere come to Christ, that they receive and believe and accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul intimates that there is a group of people who will enter into what we call the one new man, the body of Christ. And once the last Gentile enters into the church, into the body of Christ, then the Jewish people in overwhelming numbers are going to have the veil lifted, the scales removed. Twice in the book of Romans, Paul has said that Israel's unbelief was unable to cancel God's promises in chapter 3, verse 3, in chapter 9, verse 6. And so when he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? You would think that his people wouldn't be a source of controversy. You would think everyone would understand that when Paul is speaking of his people, he's speaking of the Jewish people. He's already said, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, there are a lot of people who claim, who pretend that they are the Jews, that they're Jewish people. It's interesting to me how many people want to identify themselves as a Jew who in fact are not descendants of Abraham, who are not descendants of Isaac or Jacob. There are people groups who will substitute themselves for the Jewish people, but Paul makes it abundantly clear that whatever it means to be a Jew, he's talking about a corporate group of people. The Bible makes it clear that there's going to be a national Israel that makes its way out of the dispersion into the restoration, that this blessing will be a national land. I have several commentaries. One interesting one by a man named Roy Lauren, who wrote his commentary in 1946 and 1947, and he eventually published it in 1948. Whether he did before May 14th or after May 14th, I am not certain But for those of you who are familiar, the Jewish people return to the land. They partition the land and a national state of Israel is formed on May 14th. What's interesting is what Roy Lauren writes. He writes again, quote, God has a program and he's working on that program. For that reason, he will not cast away his people. World interest will center on them yet, and world attention will focus on Palestine. This land which has been lying in obscurity and barrenness for these many centuries is destined to play a dominant part in the world's future. Remember, he wrote this way more than 60 years ago. He writes, quote, it is the strategic pivot of the earth. It's not merely sacred soil for contending sects which are blinded by bigotry. It is strategic to the world's destiny. It is strategic geographically, politically, prophetically, even as it has been strategic spiritually, unquote. He's absolutely right. In 70 AD, the combined armies of Titus and Vespasian, the 10th and 12th legions, enter Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. The Jews are dispersed. 
Over two million Jewish people are killed. Those who survive flee into Egypt and Alexandria. They head east for what is modern Iran and Iraq and hide out in Babylon. They go north to Antioch and Assyria and Aleppo. They scatter all around the Mediterranean rim. And for centuries... 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, Jewish people hang on to their cultural and national identity. What is it about these people? What is it about their circumstances? And what is it about their future? Paul says... God has unfinished business. Paul offers his personal testimony to prove that God hasn't rejected all of the Israelites. Paul is a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he gives us a little bit of insight into his own story. He says, quote, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with Faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's his way of saying, I know that God can't be through with the Jew because he wasn't through with me. Paul is in effect saying, if God has a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people, it must be so because it's true in my life. He, the book of Acts tells us that when Paul, when Paul was born, he was born Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 21, verse 39, Tarsus was part of a province called Cilicia, which is in modern Turkey. It was occupied by the Romans. The Jewish people offered support and help to some of the Roman people in that particular area. And many of them were granted citizenship, including Paul's own father. He was taught by Gamaliel, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, one of the most famous rabbis of the first century. He was parashim. It's translated Pharisee. He calls himself a Pharisee. It means the ones who are separated. He is a Pharisee's Pharisee. He is a Pharisee and he is the son of a Pharisee in Acts 23.6. By his own admission, he was an uninformed blasphemer. Why does he refer to himself as that since he was an observant Jew? He refers to himself as that because of the wickedness and punishment. His zeal, not only for keeping the law, but for punishing people who identified themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. In his war against the church, he attempts to destroy the church according to Philippians 3.6. He's an accomplice at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7.27. He throws Christians into prison and he hounds them. He's not content to just simply criticize them. He finds them. He persecutes them. He tortures them. He compels them to deny Jesus. He himself admits in Galatians 1.13 that he persecutes the church beyond measure and he wastes it. En route to Damascus while persecuting Christians, Saul 
is knocked down and blinded by a heavenly light. He hears a voice from heaven saying, Shaul or Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you keep kicking against this constant conviction? And the young rabbi cries out, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And Saul would have been able to say, I never hurt Jesus. But Jesus so closely identifies with the people who love him and know him and believe him that that he says that he's persecuting him. He's led by the hand to, to Damascus where a person named Ananias prays for him. The blindness is removed for him. He is baptized and he begins preaching in the synagogues of Syria. He is an observant Jew who is transformed by God and given and enters into a love relationship with the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And he sees himself as a model, as a type, and as a picture of Jewish people who are religiously inclined, but who are blinded, who have a zeal for the truth, but it's a zeal that's not according to knowledge. And for Paul, this is positive proof That the Jews are not irretrievably cast away. Because he says, I've been the object of abundant grace and abundant mercy and abundant love. And so what he does is he in effect says, if God is willing to bring this kind of mercy and this kind of grace and this kind of love into my life. Then he's willing to do it in their life. And so he says in verse 2, not just his own personal story, but the revelation in history. Look what it says in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Paul appeals to God's revelation in history and he cites the passage of scripture about the story of Elijah. Remember that chapter and verse designations don't come until way, way later in history. Paul believes that Israel has been set aside for her sin, but but that Israel is a people and, and Israel is a nation. That part of their future includes restoration. God has promised that he will keep his promises to Israel and that Israel's failure isn't a complete failure and it isn't a permanent failure and that the whole course of human history, particularly Israel's history, is known and seen by God. So when he says, his people whom he foreknew, he is giving us an insight into God's attitude that God set aside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God placed Jacob and the children 
children of Jacob into Egypt, that God raised up Moses and an enslaved people and that he was going to bring them back to the land through Joshua and Judges, through the captivities, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that the temple's going to be destroyed and they're going to bring them back, that a real Jesus is going to come in time and space, that the real God, the true God of the Bible knows the beginning from the end. That that God who never said, I will cease to be your God and you will cease to be my people. Paul affirms the faithful covenant keeping God has reserved the right to keep his covenant and to be faithful. That they are his people. And that we could even look at that word foreknew in verse 2 and begin to understand that in spite of Israel's rebellion and in spite of Israel's disobedience and in spite of Israel's refusal to embrace Jesus, as the Lord and Savior, that the great God of heaven knew even that would happen and anticipated it. And the reason why this becomes so important for each and every one of you is we have the privilege of looking into the past, but we don't have the privilege of looking into the future. We don't know what the future holds for our children and their children. But God does. God knows the truth. God knows the truth. And that you have every right and you have every responsibility to impart to your children and your grandchildren the future of the promises that have been given through Christ Jesus the Lord. You can talk to them about his love and his sacrifice of mercy and grace. We have every reason to believe that a faithful, covenant-keeping God is going to be faithful in your life and, and be faithful in your future. And so in verse 3, look what he says. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. As Paul reminds the Romans of the story of Elijah, most of you are familiar with this story. How Elijah was a prophet and how he had a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. That he understood the subsequent threats of King Jezebel against his life. You remember the story of how Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and, and they do this incredible thing where, where Elijah basically says, look, we're going to have a little contest. We're going to have a little Come to Jehovah contest. We're going to determine who is the true God. Is it Baal? Or is it God? And here's what you do. You take your sacrifice. You call down fire from heaven. The one that brings fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. That God is God. And you know the story. How they take a sacrifice. How they slaughter the sacrifice. How they 
cry and plead and beg and they cut themselves and they rant and they rave and they do it for an hour and they do it for another hour and the day, the morning turns to noon and the noon turns to the afternoon and they're exhausted from crying out to a God who doesn't exist and then you remember what Elijah does. He takes the sacrifice, he soaks it, he soaks it in water, he drowns it, he drenches it and then he drenches the wood because he wants people to understand that if something supernatural is going to happen that they will confirm that and then he calls out to God and God brings fire down from heaven and the sacrifice is consumed and Baal, the, Baal, the prophets of Baal run for their lives and Elijah kills them all. And you remember that after he does that Jezebel says Elijah I'm going to kill you before the sun goes down. And he runs for his life. Elijah felt certain that he was all alone. And that his was a lost cause. Elijah for a moment believed that he was the last man standing. That he was the final prophet. That he was the only believer. And I want to draw your attention to something really interesting in verse 2. Remember where he says how he pleads with Israel against God. Note what it says. How he pleads with God. Not for Israel, but against Israel. Do you know what the text is saying? Elijah found himself in the unhappy position of praying against Israel. Elijah complains. There's no remnant. The whole nation is blind. The whole nation is apostate. Elijah entertains the notion that God has cast Israel away for her stubborn rebellion because of her continual disobedience and apostasy. In his prayer, Elijah's attitude comes out loud and clear. You've killed the prophets. You've torn down the altars. This is his way of saying The voice of God and the revelation of God, you've blotted it out. And the altars, it's a very specific word in the Greek language which speaks of altars of sacrifice. The place where sacrifice took took place. He's in effect saying, I'm the only one left. All of Israel is apostate. I'm pretty certain you're through with them. But in verse 4, he says, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That expression, the divine response, again, is an idiomatic expression, which means the answer of God. It's a very specific word in the Greek language. It's only used here in the entire Greek New Testament. It originally meant in the Greek culture a business transaction or a political negotiation. We might even use the word treaty. It came to, to mean a decree or an ordinance or a divine injunction or a legal warning. How does God Answer Elijah's prayer. The Lord God's response is, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And by the way, this is the only mention of the pagan god Baal 
in the New Testament, which the name appears some 62 times in the Old Testament. In the ancient world of Elijah, Baal was sort of like the chief rival of Jehovah. Jehu destroyed the worshipers of Baal in 2 Kings 10. At first, the word became a synonym. It was a synonym for the word Lord. On my radio program, someone called me um, on Friday, and they basically said, well, is it true that in the Arabic language that the word Allah is the Arabic word for God? And the answer is yes, it is the Arabic word for God. And they asked me the strange question, well, is that the God of the Bible? And I said, no, Arabic Christians actually have to wind up using the word in the sense of they'll say Allah. uh, And then they'll put Eben. And, And so they'll add a word, God, in the Arabic language, the Father. They'll say Allah Ab. That is God the Father. And they'll say Allah the Son or Allah the Spirit. In other words, for observant Christians, people who know and love the Lord, they will use it specifically so that they can differentiate between the Muslim worldview of Allah and what the Bible has to say about the true and the living God. And so even in the ancient world, it was sometimes used like Lord, Jerubbabel in Judges 6, Eshbal, 1 Chronicles 9.13, Meribal, not dancing with the stars Meribal, this is a different guy in the Bible. So, the word became associated with the worship of the Phoenician god Baal. And there came a point, by the time we get to the time of Hosea in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where there was a, there was a campaign to eliminate the word, to strike it from the Jewish or the Hebrew vocabulary. And so instead of using the word Baal, observant Jews would use the word Bosheth, which in the Hebrew language means that which is an abomination. Or that which is a shame. And so the Lord is quick to remind Elijah that God, God, the real God, the God of the Bible has a remnant. The Lord is quick to discourage Elijah's complaint against Israel. Now this becomes so very important for each and every one of us. Because if God doesn't accept a prayer from Elijah against Israel... Do you think it's a good idea for us to pray against God's plans and purposes as it pertains to Israel? Do you think that this means that there's any room for anti-Semitism in our hearts? And the answer has to be no, no, double time, no. And so, with the small remnant, God is going to fulfill his prophecy. The moment that he says, I have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, God is going to embark on a path and he is going to 
make a promise and he is going to appropriate a future that he has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and David. He is going to walk into the future and he's going to fulfill the plans and the purposes that he has in order to bring forth the Messiah. Paul looks into Israel's past and he discovers that no matter how dark or desperate or diabolical God has a plan. God has a remnant. And look what it says in verse 5. God's spiritual remnant. Even so then at this present time. There is a remnant. According to the election of grace. The word remnant. Interesting. Lima. Or it comes from a, a Greek verb. Lepo. It means to leave. And so in this context, it means that which is left. Even so, then at this present time, there is that which is left. According to the election of God, the purpose of God is found in Israel's past. It continues in Israel's present. Even so, then at this present time, there is that which is left. The remnant is that pocket of righteousness, that minority of faithfulness in every generation who live and serve and exist to further the plan and the purpose of God. Do you remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, and upon this particular statement that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has a plan. God has a remnant. The remnant are the pockets of righteousness who will fulfill and serve the purpose of God in each and every generation. And so you can't even begin to imagine the stewardship that's been entrusted to you with your children and with your grandchildren to impart to them the things of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God. These are the men and women who keep the program of God alive and the machinery of redemption intact. Again, Roy Lauren says it marvelously. He writes, quote, They are isolated islands of the faithful through which truth remains pure and uncorrupted. They are seemingly insignificant communities of the godly who are despised by their contemporaries. But jealously guarded by God. They are the salt of the earth. And its soul saving element. Without them civilization would have long since ceased to exist. And man would have been swallowed up in his sinful folly. God has a plan. God has a remnant. God has a people. Who love him and who love righteousness. The Lord always has a remnant and the Lord always will. Noah was God's remnant in the godless days prior to the flood. Lot was God's remnant in Sodom. But the remnant that Paul is speaking here is Jewish. You see the truth is. When the Bible speaks of a remnant according to the election of grace, almost always it's a remnant 
and an election of grace that applies to an individual. Only under the most extraordinary of circumstances does it apply to a nation. And do you know what Paul is doing in this passage? He's applying it to the, to the Jewish people. And he's applying it to the Jewish nation. He's speaking of a collective national reservation or restoration, if you will. And I guess the way that I would put this is that the preservation of the Jew and their reservation for the future is because of God's ultimate plan of restoration and redemption for people exactly like you and exactly like me. And by the way, we can't overstate or exaggerate the significance of Paul's statement. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. Remember the whole book of Romans is built on these repeated themes. Grace and faith. Or we might think of a grace working through faith. Grace is the place that has its origins in God and it moves in love towards man. Faith begins in the human heart having been informed by grace and enriched by grace and bathed by grace. Grace for an individual that comes from God, but also grace for a collective people, for a nation. There's a germ of hope. And Paul is going to flesh out that hope for humanity as he begins to describe the future of the Jew. Look what it says in verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Paul draws stark contrast. Grace is not work, and work is not grace. The New Testament's repeated testimony, salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The repeated testimony is we can never, no, never, no, never earn or merit our salvation. Grace comes from the Lord. But the Bible says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ in John 1.17. We're saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8. We're justified by grace, Romans 3.24. Our salvation is the gift of God's grace, Romans 5.15. Grace, grace, grace that is greater than our sin, Romans 5.20. All believers are under grace, not the law, Romans 6.14. God is the God of grace, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. This is a a, a consuming grace, a sufficient grace, a sustaining grace. And as wonderful as grace is and as powerful as grace is, there's danger. There's danger, not in grace, but in our response to grace. And the danger, of course, is the rejection of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's called the insult to the spirit of grace in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29. And so there are four dangerous response. Rejection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
which means the rejection of the spirit of grace. Number two, resisting God's standards of sexual purity is called turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness in Jude chapter 4. And then number three, returning to the law in order to to be declared righteousness is called frustrating the grace of God in Galatians chapter 3 Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 so rejection of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus refusing to repent resisting God's standards returning to the law and remember this is the problem This is the problem. This is the problem. This is the the problem. The Jewish people go, we want to be saved. Of course you do. But we want to be saved apart from Jesus. We want to be saved apart from grace. We want to be saved apart from the gospel. And Paul reminds them, there is no salvation apart from Jesus. Apart from grace. Apart from the gospel. In verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. This is the majority and the minority that I spoke of earlier. In verse 7, Paul says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What did it seek? Salvation. How is salvation found? Through Christ. But the elective obtained it, and the rest were blinded or hardened. One group was blocked from achieving their desire, salvation. The other obtained it. How? Because they loved Jesus, because they embraced Jesus, because they accepted Jesus. One group blinded. One group blessed. Why was one group blessed and one group blinded? Again, because one group embraced the Lord Jesus. One group understood that Jesus was the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes in Romans 10, 14. One group understood and embraced the fact that there is a righteousness apart from the law in grace and in Christ. And one that refused to believe that. And so three Old Testament writers predicted that God would harden the hearts of unbelieving Israel. And would blind the eyes of unbelieving Israel. It was found by Moses in Deuteronomy 29.4. By David in Psalm 69.22. By Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29 verse 10. And so Paul will lay out his scriptural argument. In verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. Isaiah 29, 10, in the Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew language that's translated, well, let me just begin with the Hebrew text in Isaiah 29.10. In Isaiah 29.10, that statement, a spirit of a deep sleep, Paul elects to use a Greek word that only appears here in the Greek New Testament, 
which comes from a word which means to hit or to violently strike or to stun. The idea is a blow or a wound. We have a word that we use in our culture and in our society. We use the term concussion. When a person has received a violent blow to the head, which results in stupor, we call that concussion. The condition renders the victim unwilling or unable to respond. And here the idea is to respond to the divine promptings. The fact that God has given them a spirit of stupor in no way exonerates the hard-hearted rebels. Part of Paul's point as a lawyer is he's going to understand that this is a judicial act. In other words, God declares them such because they are such. In other words, this isn't God's fault. God doesn't hit the Jewish people over the head in order to give them a concussion so that there's no way that they can come to Christ. Just like God doesn't give your family members a concussion or your friends a concussion or your mom and your dad. What is it about these people? How come they can't see? How come they can't understand? How come they can't accept Christ? Is it because God has slapped them upside the head so that they can never believe? No. He's reinforcing what's already there. When we resist and reject and disobey, when we're indifferent to God and we're indifferent to his commands, we become hardened, stupefied. We go into a sort of moral coma. And the Bible doesn't even hint, it does not even hint, not even for a moment, that if you have a broken and a contrite heart, That if you go to Christ, that if you embrace Jesus, that God will ignore you or neglect you or withhold from you his mercies. The Bible doesn't teach that the sinner is a helpless victim of his own adverse conditions, unwilling and unable to lay hold of God's grace or mercy or love. The picture is of a God who loves you, who has grace and mercy, who extends it to you and invites you to embrace it. Why else would the scripture say? How can we neglect so great a salvation And so David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Paul quotes Psalm 69, 22 and 23. And you'll note that in his argument, not only just to the Romans, but in the off chance that an observant and a religious Jew might be reading his statement, he quotes all three parts of the of of the canon of the Hebrew scripture. He quotes the Torah in verse 8, Deuteronomy 29.3. The prophets in verse 8 at the end, Isaiah 29.10. The spirit of slumber or stupor comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 69, verses 29. Or chapter 69, verses 22 and 23. 
And Paul is careful to offer scriptural support for God's judicial hardening of the heart. The chosen nation blinded, hardened, lacked spiritual discernment in verse 8. They become weighed down through ritual and ceremony in verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap. He's talking about the showbread, the table. He's talking about the rites and the rituals. David, David is talking about... The table of showbread in the ark of the wilderness. The picture is that of a group of people who are hardened and weighted down through ritual and ceremony. Burdened by the law. Unable to fulfill its demands and then breaking them. And it didn't take long for the Jewish people to wholly abandon God's ideal. They wanted a works-based righteousness and so they made... The situation such, the rules such, that they thought that they might be able to keep the rules. And so the judicial hardening of the heart, both maddening and mysterious, contains deep within it an element of God's will. W.H. Griffith Thomas uses the illustration this way. He says, imagine you put your hand in a fire. And you say, the fire burned me. Is that true? It is true. What if you said, I burned myself? Is that true? You put your hand in the fire, so that also is true. Is it true to say you put your hand in the fire and you're responsible? Yes. Is it true to say that the fire is responsible? Yes. Could you even go so far as to theologically say, well, you know, it's God who created hands and it's God who created fire. So therefore, God put my hand in the fire. Do you see how ridiculous that logic is? In a moral world where you make moral choices... God encourages you to make the right choice. In verse 10 it says, Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Blindness, darkness, spiritual indifference is going to bring misery. And so the psalm Paul quotes, Psalm 69, is David's messianic psalm. This is the psalm where David begs God to rescue him from his enemies who constantly insult him and to severely punish his enemies and vindicate himself. And so David sings and cites four sources of his suffering. His foes in verses 1 through 4. In verses 19 through 21, his flesh in verses 5 through 6, his family in verse 8. Surprisingly, his faith in verses 7 through 9. David cries out to God and he asks God to take the security of his enemies away from them in verse 22 and to blind them and to make them weak. And Paul uses that exact same scripture that just like David prayed, make my enemies blind and weak, the son of David has allowed his enemies To become blind and weak. And so, what are we to take from all of this? Well, God did for Saul what he's willing to do for you and me. 
God can take a hard-hearted, religious bigot set in his ways and open up a whole avenue of grace and mercy and love as you come into a right relationship with God, as you begin to understand the identity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And what of the hard case? Paul is basically making it abundantly clear, I am the hard case. What about the person that you say, that person could never come to Christ? Paul's argument, if I can come to Christ, anybody can come to Christ. And what God did for Israel is a picture of God's faithfulness and God's plan. Was Israel unfaithful and disobedient? The answer is yes. In spite of that unfaithfulness and disobedience, God blends hope and mercy and recovery and forgiveness. And Paul will argue even in blindness, God offers salve. For your eyes, he blends mercy with judgment and he won't cast his people aside. And so for the person who's begging the question, has God given up on me? Is God through with me? Are there no more, is there no more love for me? Is there no more grace for me? Is there no more mercy for me? Is there one chance that God will extend mercy and hope and forgiveness? And Paul says God retains a remnant. In the most corrupt and apostate churches... God wants to find true followers and true believers and true sons and true daughters. That no matter how strained or imperfect or incomplete your religious training or your religious upbringing. God wants to save you and redeem you. And Elijah was hard pressed to even imagine that God could even have a remnant. Because the vast majority of Jewish people in Elijah's day. And the vast majority of people. Jewish people. In Paul's day. Came to Christ. So we, ha- we can't be discouraged by the rebellious majority or the apostate community. Their fate should serve as a warning that we not neglect our Lord and that we not neglect the gospel and that we not neglect grace. Do we live in a world where church members and church leaders can become hardened to the gospel message? Get saved, get right, get saved, get right, get saved, get right. Heard it all before, heard it all before, heard it all before, heard it, heard it, heard it all before. There comes a point where we must allow the work of God by his Holy Spirit to break our heart. Because the proclamation of truth and the familiarity with truth can never serve as a substitute for believing and embracing and walking 
in the truth. How will God deal with us if we neglect the gospel, if we neglect grace, if we show contempt for our Savior? And so, Paul pushes the reader forward in faith, forward in hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that the love that you've shown us, the grace that you've extended to us, and the mercy that's been lavished upon us, that we wouldn't neglect it, that we wouldn't forsake it. That, Lord, like Paul, we would embrace Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our source. He's our rest. He is both the subject of our love and the object of our faith. He is the author and the finisher and the beginning and the end. Jesus is our all. And so again, Father, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a profound and keen understanding that God's plans are perfect, that his future is set, and that, Lord, we will trust you to carry us into the future, a future that you have ordained, one that's filled with love and abundant mercy in Jesus And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.